Hi, buddy. Hello, David. Welcome to my new closet. (laughs) How is it spacious, the closet? Uh, It is not spacious. I do fit in it, uh, but there's like two suitcases and a pile of like duffel bags full of clothes. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Hashtag quarantine podcasting. Well, at least you're in an idyllic country retreat. Oh, man. I am in my office, which is where I almost always am, a windowless room inside my apartment. Uh, And for me, the material conditions of my life have not changed significantly, except that I live in a city that is now completely inaccessible to me. (laughs) (laughs) Which sucks, but we have each other, and we have friendship, and I have my relationships with the rest of the Radio Drama Revival team, which is always mediated through the internet anyway, except for those rare occasions that I get to see y'all in person. It's true. We rely on the internet to make this happen. Something that we've been doing at production meetings is opening by talking about like what percentage of our brains have turned to goo. Uh, sort of as a quick shorthand for how we're how we're doing emotionally. So Ellie, today, what is your what is your goo ratio? What's your goo percentage? My goo percentage is uh, well. Hang on, let me think about this for a sec. Um, I did get a good breakfast. I didn't sleep well. I'm talking mm-hmm. to you. Oh. Mm, I'm gonna say that like my goo percentage is something like like hovering at like maybe like 48, 49 percent. <laughs> Okay. Respectable. You are surprisingly functional for someone who is nearly half goo. I usually function at half goo, so (laughs) everyone else is now up to my base level. (laughs) (laughs) If you can't handle me at my half goo, you don't deserve me at my full goo. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds right. What's your goo percentage, David? I would say that I'm at about 25% goo. This morning I made bubble tea with like homemade tapioca balls. And I know you don't like tapioca, uh, but Jillian and I found it very restorative and squishy and good. Everybody go have the things that you like. So, okay. So, so Ellie and I are not just goofing to goof. We're not just calling each other just to shoot the shit. Although that is something that we enjoy doing. Um, the reason we have called you here today in what, as you know, is the last episode of our season, because thanks to Ellie's thought leadership, we are doing seasons now. Everybody deserves a break. Everyone deserves a break, <laughs> especially now. Um, yeah. But but the, the reason that we're having this episode is actually because of Leslie Joyce. Our wonderful patron, <gasps> Leslie, had this idea back in January where she asked, like, hey, can we... Can we have an episode where we see inside the the process of an episode of Radio Drama Revival? How it gets assembled, who has the ideas, how basically how the sausage gets made. And we were like, Leslie, that's such a good idea. And then we immediately, like, who was it? Anne, um, our wonderful, wonderful social media manager, Anne, went into our work slack and said, hey, this post from Leslie in the Discord is really interesting. We should do that. And we all went... Hell yes. <laughs> and so we've been planning this more or less since January or February. And if I can just make a little plug for our Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival, uh, being in the RDR Discord gets you unparalleled access to us. Like if you have a Leslie quality idea, the Patreon, like the Discord is the best way to, to deliver that to us. If you're like, oh, I really want to hear them go deep on you know, music, you know, like what if you had a going deep episode with a composer Uh, or what if you did like a whole thing about like the history of sound design, you know, these are all things that we would love to cover. Um, But if you have ideas that we haven't thought of, please like deliver them to us. Uh, Yeah. But thank you, Leslie, for the idea. Uh, We got really excited about it. We have been uh, staring at like a big, long outline of, how the sausage gets made. And it helped us also like recreate our workflow for RDR so that it would be smoother. Thank you, Will, for for that amazing workflow. Mm-hmm. Y'all, if you create like podcasts and you've got multiple people working on it, or even if it's just yourself and you go through different stages, which everybody does, you should definitely create a workflow for yourself or for your team. Um, 
that's it's really good to be able to check boxes off and shift things like down a workflow to make sure that everything is happening at the proper pace. It feels so satisfying. We use Airtable, which was something that Ellie suggested that we start doing last year. Uh, and I love it. Airtable, send us money. Airtable, respond to our email. Airtable, please sponsor us. We love you. <laughs> now is the time. Give us many dollars. <laughs> So, yeah, so that's what you can expect to hear in this episode. Uh, we've got a lot of really interesting stuff coming down the pike. We have big changes ahead for the podcast, which I'm very excited about. Uh, it's going to be sweet. It's going to be sweet. So make sure you stick around to the end so that you hear those big changes. And now, changes! Big changes! Change change, and continuity, yes? Yeah, both of those yeah. things. Because continuity is important. It's important for us and it's important for you. It's always going to be a hot dog, but it could have a different kind of mustard on it. <laughs> and now we're going to move on to uh, the very backbone of RDR. We're going to talk about some radio drama revival history uh, with Fred Greenhouch, our executive producer and founder of RDR, and David. Let's go back to the beginning. What, what year was it when you started RDR? Uh, I think the first show was like January 2007 and so I got my first radio drama show was in 2006 and I really liked making it and I was like this is a really cool thing we people should be making more of these and at the time uh I mean it still is around uh, WBG the local radio station community station uh, and it kind of an interesting model because it is both a community station and a college station. So it's not sort of clearly demarcated one or the other. There's kind of a cool cross-pollination between them. Uh, that station, essentially the process was anytime a show slot became available because an existing volunteer was, you know, moving on or, you know, not doing their slot anymore. Uh, anybody who has was like, had taken like a free course and submitted a demo tape could be considered. And I had done those prerequisites and had a concept called radio drama revival. And, you know, really honestly, the name was just because I was like an SEO guy. And I'm like, if I put radio drama in the name, it will show up in Google. And that's really (laughs) how that was. And they accepted my demo tape. Um, Lisa Bunker, the program director, um, thought it would be cool to have a radio drama show at one o'clock in the afternoons on Thursdays. Um, And I decided to, start podcasting it because i thought maybe there's something to this internet thing um and the rest is history the rest is history so uh, i think you and i covered this story back in like like late 2015 maybe early 2016 when i when i first took over stewardship of the show um but you and i met in when like 2012 2013 yeah thereabouts yeah and um my goodness it's been 13 years this year of the show. So if you sort of slice those up into sort of four-year chunks, you know, the 2007 to 2011-ish period of time was definitely a lot of a discovery and definitely early days where not all that much was happening. I mean, it's not quite the right way to say it, but like, um, you know, the scene was considerably smaller than what it would turn out to become. Um, You know, there were, you know, pretty small handful of, of people at least who had shows that, you know, the, you know, the kind of internet community as it exists today was, was, a, yeah, I guess we should smaller. caveat like uh, making, yeah, making yeah. audio fiction via podcast in the United States. Right. Cause yeah, it's, it gets tricky. Cause any of these conversations, like, you know, nothing really begins right. or ends. <laughs> right. right. So to say like, Oh, it really started this way. Like, Did look, it? like, what we're doing today is a continuation of something that start. You know, what do you bring it back to the the golden age of radio? Oh, bring it back to the golden age of radio. Well, it goes back to like, you know, the first time that we had language to you know give us a sense of community around a campfire. So like, sure. there's sort of no beginning or end to audio storytelling in terms of like the internet moments. You know, let's just say. It's 150,000 years old and leave it at that. Exactly, exactly. And so what was, when we first met, it was like just as the internet scene was starting to blossom, in my opinion, and kind of coming out of the early days when a lot of people who were figuring out the technology and kind of getting and and just experimenting with formats. And like a lot of like you, the influences I had were in fact 
radio radio because there wasn't a lot of like internet age influences because it was the internet was still you know not the internet itself was new but internet audio storytelling native to the internet was not a huge thing and so it was like like when i first started it was basically just like i think i literally had no idea where it was going and i emailed at the time an email list that existed uh a listserv saying, "Hey, I'm starting this new radio, radio drama show. Does anyone want me would let me play their work?" And like a bunch of people responded. And essentially, the submissions process, which to this day is a very, very uh, g- uh, gracefully bountiful uh, submissions box, has ever been overflowing. And that really was what gave the show its legs. It is much more formalized now, I will say, for Ellie and Rashika's sake. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely gotten a little bit, you know. I was an artist who wanted to have a place to put my thing out into the world. And then it turned out there were a bunch of other people who were interested in doing the same thing. And then that group of people found each other thanks to the internet. Fred, both you and I have, have film degrees, right? Uh, you know, I've done film. I actually, And I did film school, but my, my degree is technically... Creative writing? Creative. Well, actually, it's media studies, creative writing. But yeah, yeah. I mean, film is in there for sure. I mean, I'm, I'm English. English and film, right, is mine. I don't know. I feel like you and I both got into audio fiction for approximately similar reasons. Yeah. Like, did you did you want to make a film and you were like, oh, but all the stuff I want to do is too, like, expensive to shoot? Pretty much exactly that. Yeah. Like, I, well, I actually started sort of straight up fiction writing and, um, which is, you know, fine. I don't have, I, and I actually... <laughs> Like, I, I ironically, I'm sort of going back a little bit to fiction writing now just because I have some free time on my hands at the moment. But when I went to film school, I don't know really why I decided to go. I, I honestly decided to go because I wanted to go somewhere warm. Like Southern Maine. Yeah, well, well no, that's why, I, that's why I ended up in New Orleans was because they had a film program. And I was like, oh, it'd be cool. Why, why don't we, wouldn't it be cool to expand storytelling into filmmaking? And yeah, and what I learned, I mean, I really love the creative process and the collaborative nature of you know, filmmaking compared to writing, which is a beautiful but, you know, uh, solitary art, at least for long parts of the process. And like a, a, an art that involves like lots of people doing things and all this technical stuff. Because I, I also am a geek and, you know, kind of always been, you know, puttering around with computers. So like, I kind of like the technical aspect and the creative aspect and the collaborative aspect of film. But yes, like you just said, <laughs> um, you know, all my ideas were just too kooky and large to fit into a independent filmmaker college student's budget. And so someone introduced me to, you know, old time radio tapes when I got back to Maine in 2005. And I was like, this is, this is cool. Why is no one doing this? And it wasn't that no one was doing it, but very few people were doing it. And um, yeah, that's kind of how I thought there might be something to this. Sure. For me, yeah, I, I, I studied film in school. And then when I was in college, I started a radio theater company because um, I wanted to tell big, goofy stories about, like, airships and, you know, punching Nazis in the goofy face. Goofy stories with David Reinstrom, never. Yeah, oh, who, who would have thunk? Um, <laughs> and the film department at my university had these, like, tiny little crappy mini DV cameras. Like, the school television station had significantly better camera equipment. Um and I, I was getting involved with the radio station at the same time. And I was like, oh, you know what? Like, like the sound quality is much better, you know, if I, if, I do, if I do this stuff not as film. And I thought back to all of the classic audio fiction that I had grown up on. But yeah, that's like, that's what I channeled into the, those first like three productions that I did in school. But anyway, okay. So 2012, 2013 or so, you and I meet. Uh, and now we're in that second phase of... That second, like, four-year chunk. Yeah, and the reason I was thinking that this time was probably 2011, 2012 was because there were not just, like, a couple, but, like, starting to become a little bit of a critical mass of interesting projects on the internet. So at that time, um, there were awards, the Mark Time Awards and the Ogle Awards were, you know, specifically for audio drama. They had been around for a while, I think, you know, sort of before my time as well, going back maybe to even, you know, early 2000s. You know, there and not that many things that celebrate audio fiction storytelling specifically. And so that that happened to be one of them. And by virtue of that being this award uh, and being at a science fiction and fantasy convention provided a cool, provided an opportunity for this community of people to actually meet 
in person. Uh, so that's how yeah. some of us started to connect. I think of this period as being like the period from we're alive to Night Vale. Like Night Vale marks for me the beginning of the next like big phase. So we met at the Mark Time Awards in like 2013, right? Uh, and then there was the like Save RDR phase. I think this was like the first like big wave of Fred burnout. I, I don't, yeah. So I, I'm really grateful that I got to do RDR and that it became as big as it did and that it really found an audience and I think uh and I think you probably share some of these same feelings like especially as a creator it was like really cool to be able to sort of like look around and find artists whom I, I admired and then be like have an excuse to talk to them and like really pick their brain and learn about their art and their process yeah. um and make and making a ton of friends along the way um you know and I mean, for a lot of years, it was a weekly show format that included a terrestrial show format. And so the process involved you coming up with a 30-minute, you know, live-to-air version, going into a booth and recording my voiceover and using whatever component parts were to recut that 30 minutes into a show that was often lo- you know, different duration than what fit on a, on a terrestrial radio broadcast slot. And then, you know, and get it out there. And... Um, and and on a weekly basis for like, I think I was pretty, pretty good about it for almost seven years and which is great, but also as a single producer with, yeah, it was no, no, and yeah, and I, and it was just, it was exhausting. And I, I don't know, like I, I definitely kind of had the bit of a lone wolf complex where I didn't really have collaborators. I didn't really know how to find or bring on collaborators, but I definitely had you know, worked myself to a point of exhaustion. And then there were a couple kind of false starts when I reached the, when I realized I was reaching a burnout point. You know, some of the early conversations, it was just wasn't clear whether someone would really have the kind of the grit and the dedication to not only just keep it going, but also to bring new stuff and do new interesting things with it and not just, you know, have it become a mausoleum of whatever. And some, I don't even right. really know how the sort of magical auspiciousness happened that landed. I know, like, we obviously, we knew each other, but I, I don't know at what point we said, you know what? You're crazy enough to, to take on this this, <laughs> this this lovely yoke. I, I don't know. I, f- I can't remember how that. So it's... I think it might have been the death of Stan Freeberg. Yeah. Um, because well before I ended up hosting, I filled in for you. I did like a tribute show to Stan Freeberg, who is one of my like audio heroes. And so I like put together this basically like 40 minute obituary package where we featured some of his work. And I did like an essay about why his work was important to me. Um, that I, that's like that's like the the start point in my mind where I think I planted the seed. Like I could do this. Yeah. I, I actually I just and I just shared that I'm doing this online audio fiction course, and I shared that piece specifically because I think it is it's it, it really it, yeah yeah I did I, I did, well because thank you not that many people have heard of Stan Freeberg and you do a beautiful job. Uh, you know, celebrating his his work, yeah. And I think that there. Thank you, Fred. That means so much. Yeah. Well, you're welcome. It's a good piece, and I think very in not yeah not all that many people know that story, and so I think yeah yeah that the the I would say our aesthetics are you know compatible in that way of like we you know right. there's a lot of yeah there's a lot there's like the the the, the tent of audio fiction is is broad and, and deep and also and colorful in also many ways and the kinds of things that we find interesting i think are similar sorts of things and like and so i think part of it was like oh it's a kindred spirit you know um <laughs> yeah and, and so that's yeah that that i think that's what made it seem possible and then uh yeah and then passed and on then we the grew the team yeah i mean that's the coolest thing to me that's the that's the real secret. Yeah, I mean, again, <laughs> I, I mean, Radio Bravo has like exceeded my wildest dreams because you know it's one thing to just to make a thing, you know, for yourself or for whatever reasons, and just you have a thing and it goes out to the world and people think of it and they like it or they don't like it. But like, you know, I, I did, 
it did always sometimes have a sense that like you know, Raider Rum Revival was like for something bigger, which was like for a community, for a a scene of artists. And so to see that it wasn't a Fred project, it was a project for this art form that can grow and expand and change shape and and you know have different voices and and all of that evolve as the art form itself evolves and become sort of it, it, like that's the most wonderful thing about all of this like i yeah i'm just it's it's it brings tears to my eyes really it's really it's really fantastic to have and that, that that people believe in what we're doing and to be able to bring on you know ellie and will and rashika and ann and Heather's been along for many, 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 many research projects and Eli cutting yeah. tape for us constantly and, and Sean kind of giving us, you know, uh, support from the from his perspective. And so it's like, it's just really a cool thing because uh, yeah. it's about doing a thing that's that's about something. It's about, you know, celebrating the diversity vitality of audio fiction, right? <laughs> so, uh, yeah that's yeah like that the fact that we've that there's something that there's something about rdr that resonates with people not just as listeners but also as people who want to participate to the show's show growing is so super yeah super grateful for that it's magical now i know fred when when we initially started talking about like thinking through how this conversation would would go and what it would look like we were debating whether or not to you know abide by the fiction and the role play mm. that the two of us were in the same space but it seems inappropriate in this in the covid in the covid-19 era to be like yeah. we're <laughs> here we are we're together social distancing uh, yeah but you had the idea that we should like do uh, that we should both be drinking mm. something that we should like offer up uh, that we both have so we both have our glasses of we scotch do. right do. here we do I- um and I would like Fred to to offer a toast, uh, both to you, and to the team, and to the medium, and to say thank you uh, for uh, for your friendship. You know, uh, I, I'm so grateful to know you, and I'm so grateful to have been entrusted with you know the torch of this show, and it's been really deeply wonderful. Oh, thank you, and I. And so here's to you, here's to the team, and here's to the medium. Oh, cheerio. Cheers. Welcome to Submissions, step one of our Great Process TM. I'm Rashika, Submissions Editor for RDR, and I'm going to attempt to make sense of what happens to your show after you've sent it to us. On the surface, it's a pretty simple process. Your show gets sent in, it gets listened to, and then a decision is made. But you already knew that, so let's take it slow. Step one is, obviously, submitting your show. While it's true that not every show featured on Radio Drama Revival originally came in as a submission, the sheer volume of audio fiction podcasts out there means that any given show best chance of being featured is by submitting to us. We don't bite, I promise. We want to hear your art. I actually want to make a quick note here that submissions are actually closed at the moment, so maybe don't submit right now. But once they're back open, please go for it. Step two is for me to actually listen. This is the step that takes the longest. I think our backlog is at around 60 to 70 shows right now, possibly more. This is part of why we're taking a break on submissions right now. And you might see some other changes around this in the near future. 60 shows on backlog, no more. When I review a submission, I do an initial listen where I just listen to the episode without looking for anything in particular. This is where I'll catch anything glaringly obvious that would disqualify it from being featured. For example, if the show is nonfiction. I try not to look up any submission beyond whatever might be in the show description to avoid bias, so if it isn't listed there or in the submission, it's possible for something like that to slip through unnoticed until I hit play. It's happened. Other things that could immediately disqualify a show include racism, sexism, homophobia, basically any kind of unchallenged bigotry, whether that's explicit or thinly veiled in metaphor. If there's an aspect that seems like it might be crossing into one of those territories, but I'm not sure, I note it for the re-listen, and usually will alert David and or Ellie as well, so they can also take a look. After I do the initial listen, there are two ways it can go. Either I'm so pulled in by the show I'm immediately playing episode two, or 
If I have some mental notes about the first episode, I'll re-listen with a more intentional ear. Obviously, the first one is a great sign, but there definitely have been shows that have sparked more interest on the second pass. For genres that I'm more unfamiliar with especially, that second listen can really be the clincher. Things I'm looking at more closely here include sound design, use of music and silence, the acting, and of course the script. I try not to be too hard on audio quality because I know that that can be hard to achieve on limited budgets. It really only becomes a problem when the quality is so awful that it detracts from being able to concentrate on the episode. In general, the question that I'm trying to answer is, is this something RDR listeners will like and want to listen to more of? Also, what is unique about this show? I think that second one is especially important to the sticking power of a show. There could be a million sci-fi space anti-capitalist found family shows out there. But as long as yours has some element to it that's different or fresh, it'll stand strongly with the rest. Having elements of formula isn't on its own a bad thing. I would say that for the majority of accepted shows, I end up hearing at least the first two or three episodes, regardless of whether I do a re-listen on episode one. After that, it's to the production meeting and in line for reaching out to the creators and scheduling. Beyond taking shows through the submissions pipeline, there are some more things I'm working on in the background. In particular, there are some collections I'm going to be organizing that I'm very excited for. But enough of that, now on to the production meeting. Hello, it is I, Wilmst Squilliams, and I am here to talk about the first half of my job as one of our producers. I am the line producer. Every Monday, RDR has a meeting where all of us get on Zoom and talk to each other and go through everything that we need to discuss, everything that needs to be updated on. We always have an agenda. We stick to it pretty well, usually. We talk about our content pipeline, what's currently in the works, who we want to talk to. We talk about financial strategies. We talk about social media strategies. Unless we have a big project coming up like this, uh, usually they are pretty standard. Each production meeting does end with us talking about our dessert. Dessert is what we call our sweet thing at the end of each meeting. Just a nice little update. Something that happened to us that was sweet or something that we love. Just a really nice way to end the meetings. The real heft of the work gets done the subsequent day, every Tuesday. Me, previously David, and now Ellie as well, we all meet over Slack. We have an RDR Slack to do what we call our punch list kapow. During our punch list, we take all of our to-dos from the meeting the day previous and we get them done. We send those emails. So for instance, if Rashika says, hey, this was a great submission, we should absolutely have them on. Once we've all agreed, I will send an outreach email to that podcast. The email has a doodle where they can give us their availability so we can schedule with them. Once they have said, yeah, this is great. Let's 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 talk. Let's get something happening here. We'll also send them paperwork, things like a guest release and an episode release form. We use DocSketch for that. We'll also do things like making sure our Patreon is in order, that everything that needs to be uploaded is uploaded, that we have everything scheduled that needs to be scheduled. Anything we need to get done, we try to get done during the punch list. Once we've sent that email, scheduled with the podcasters, and all of the docs are signed, we send it off to Heather for research. Hello, internet friends. I'm Heather, the researcher for RDR. I'm usually an invisible, behind-the-screen sort of contributor, but today they're making me talk, so I'll do my best. So, how do I do the research for RDR? Using the power of invisible millennial skills, I Google things. End of segment. Okay, but really. I usually start with the name of the podcast and try to find their official website, hoping, always, that they actually have one. Whether or not they have an official press kit, please, please have one, please. Whether their cast and crew involves people we've previously interviewed, because they probably do. <laughs> their social media, whether they have a Reddit, where people have talked about them on Reddit, an interesting good and an interesting bad review on their Apple podcast page, because then we know what the erudite people have to say, both for and against. And then anywhere the name of the podcast and the word review or interview might be. 
This can be real annoying if the name of your podcast is something that has reviews for it for other things, like Farm Meridian, which is part of the title of a book about the Cold War, or Unwell, which is an adjective that applies to a lot of things, so there's more noise to filter through. I do so like it when we get shows like Nim's Nebulous Notions, where you just know that the search results are actually going to be about what you're looking for without much ambiguity. Not a lot of other Nims having notions, nebulous or otherwise. I also go through a show's official Twitter feed to see if they've interacted with Will or Ellie or David, because, come on, they often have, and it's cute to be like, here are all the times y'all have been friends. It also often leads to finding any reviews Will or Ellie might have done for that show, and they probably have. After that, I start on the actual people we're interviewing, which is normally one or two. I start with their full name, plus the podcast name, try to find their personal website, again, hoping they have one, and their social media. LinkedIn can be really useful, since you can see where they went to school, find if they were ever in their college or high school paper, see where they have their day job, if they have one, and if their day job website has bios. It also helps to have another data point to cross-reference when people have common names, so you know that this Mary Smith in particular is different than the Mary Smith that was also from their hometown, but who died in 1985 and leaves behind three beautiful dogs. Plus, people often use the same words to describe themselves on LinkedIn and on various other profiles, so if someone is always calling themselves a cowboy for hire, you know that's probably the same Bob as it was before, even if their work bio doesn't have a picture. If there's a secret identity or we know of a creative alter ego we want to ask them about, I'll use their Facebook or Instagram usernames and search for that and see if it leads me to an email address or other Facebook or Instagram accounts that are similar and try and Google back from there. Bonus points, people usually follow their main account from their alt account and vice versa. Bonus, bonus points. Google image reverse search for a profile picture will sometimes show you people have four Twitter accounts all with the same picture. Uh, for a recent interview with a mystery persona, I was able to find out that the two people got married during the course of making that show. And since I knew the real name of one of them, I Googled the real name and the word wedding. Everyone has a wedding website these days. Then I look for any interviews they've done about this or anything else and pull some highlights. And then I copy and paste all of it into a Google Doc and put in footnotes so that I can make a very satisfying bibliography. And that's it. David and I have been designing questions for podcast creators for a while at this point. I always start the same way. I create a brain dump section at the top of my document, and that's where I put any topics I want to discuss, words that feel important, interesting facts about the podcast, quotes from Heather's research or other interviews that I want to dig into a bit more, and whatever else inspires me. It's also where I end up with draft questions or observations. I find that as I go on writing things in the brain dump section, I'm able to realize how certain subjects connect. In fact, here's some of the brain dump section that I started with for the interview with the Mabel creators. Connections. Land and homes. Each other. Queer connections. Missed connections. Ghosts, fairy tales, folklore, the dead. Quote, an audio drama about stories and the ways women break free from or succumb to them, the tyranny of enforced reality, and the ultimate breaking of all oppressive chains. End quote. Magical and religious practice. The house in Mabel and the surrounding land has its own life and reality, and morphs as we get deeper into the story and consequentially deeper into the house and below it. My process is similar. I, I begin by doing a re-listen to the series or to select episodes. I usually do this on wireless headphones in my kitchen while I'm doing something else, cooking, folding laundry, doing dishes, and I keep a piece of scrap paper nearby. When questions occur to me, I scribble them down on the paper, and then I'll return to my computer at some point and, and dump those scribbles into the brain dump section, like Ellie said. Um, and then I start going through Heather's dossier on the interview subject and if they've done any podcast interviews. And I listen to as many of those as possible and do the same deal. Listen in the kitchen, scribble notes as they occur to me. I love listening to other people's interviews because it informs my own style as an interviewer. There's always something I can learn from another person's approach. And I also love it because when I name check an interview that a subject has done, it communicates respect to the subject. It says, I value your time enough that my team and I have done our research, have put time into it. Um, the reactions of flattered surprise that we occasionally hear from interviewees is one of my favorite sounds. Uh, 
If you're informed about the interviews your subject has already done, it gives you an advantage because it gives you a chance to go deeper. You can say, in an interview you did with Ellie, you said you liked pineapples, but what kind of pineapples? Do you like them on pizza? You know, like, like that, but meaningful. I usually ask David or Will to run a check on my questions for phrasing, length, and usefulness. We all care very deeply about the ethics of what we do. Interviewing creators about their art gets personal. So the edits before the interview also serve as a vibe check. If there's any topic that's worrying me or any questions that might be uncomfortable, the team will help me out and provide their opinions. We also ask patrons at the $5 level if they have any questions they want to contribute, which can be a lot of fun. After we do the questions, which usually get finalized the night before because we are cool like that, we actually, um, we do the thing. Our interview styles bleed into one another a little, but here's a basic rundown of what I do in an interview. I start by chatting with my interviewee off mic, and I check in with them. I ask if there's any topic they don't want me to ask about, and I let them know they can pass on a question at any time, and the editor will cut it out. When we get rolling, we go through what always feels like a bit of a farce to me in the opening of saying hi to each other. I'm actually the absolute worst at opening a recording, and I'm grateful to Will and Eli for making me sound competent. Oh, big same. And a big shout out to both Will and Eli for editing out all my burps and coughs and stuff. You would not believe how loud my body decides to get when I sit down to record anything. I always begin the interview section in the same way, by saying a kind of template. Elena Fernandez Collins, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, like that. Otherwise, I would devolve into a puddle of goofs, something like, Oh, hi, welcome to a show that is you on the it. Good, good, yes. Then I just dig right into the questions. I always start with the backbone question, where I ask about the interviewee and something basic, like when they started this podcast, or how they met their co-creators, or where they learned to do something. A biographical question that'll help situate everyone, me, you, the interviewee, and the rest of the audience, on the same page. And then we start going. You can never expect what they're going to answer your questions with, so the questions are pretty much never asked in the order that they're written. And more often than I care to think about, my interviewee will be too brilliant and answer the question and also partly or entirely answer another question as well. So on the spot, I have to come up with a follow-up question to extract more. I like to print out my questions and have them at the ready with a pencil as I listen to responses, and then I'll quietly jot notes or write follow-up questions that occur to me as I'm listening to a reply. I have a mechanical keyboard, which is <laughs> way too noisy as you can hear. Uh, so I can't type while I'm interviewing someone. It would cut way, it would cut into the thing. I have a stylus and a touchscreen to do this with. We need to take notes and mark follow-ups as we go, but we have to do it without inserting too much noise into the recording. Hi, everybody. It's Eli McElveen here with a glimpse into the editing process for Radio Drama Revival. I hear from uh, a lot of audio fiction creators that Dialogue editing is their least favorite part of the whole job, but for some reason, I, I kind of dig it. I, I don't know why there's that difference. Part of it maybe is being able to listen to the same thing over and over again, or part of it, I think, is just kind of enjoying language and the sound of speech. Like, okay, this is how amazing the human brain is. Like, you can hear a bunch of vibrations in the air coming out of your headphones, and not only do you get meaning out of those sounds, you can actually imagine what it is I'm doing to create these sounds that you're hearing with my voice, your own experience, listening to people talk and using your own voice as well, lets you make a model in your head of all the things that my mouth must be doing in order to shape the words that you're hearing. Or even if I make some random noises or I start talking in a funny voice, Chances are you can still imitate what I'm doing to a pretty impressive extent. I mean, that's that's basically how we learn language in the first place. So I guess there's good news and bad news. Bad news is we're so good at this decoding process that even a casual listener can pick out a clumsy edit. Uh, the good news is that you can hone that ability yourself to let you make better edits. Because if you've ever edited anything yourself and made a splice in the middle of a vowel, you probably know it's a pain in the ass to, to get it to sound natural. But 
certain consonants are much easier, like stops, where your mouth completely cuts off the flow of air for a split second. Uh, those are real good. Uh, so are fricatives, like sh or f. And they just give you more possibilities when you're looking for a pace, if when you're looking for a place to make an edit. They just give you more possibilities when you're looking for a place to make an edit. And you can get even more clever too. Like if, if you've got a k and a g sound, you can cut from one to the other because they're made with your tongue in the same position in your mouth. So this, for example, this might make for a really crappy take or a really bad take or a really good take. Uh, if I try to splice together these words, this might make for a really bad take. It sounds a little off. Uh, so what's happening there? The thing about consonants is most of the information that lets you tell one consonant from another comes from the vowel sounds that happen before and after the stop. Like k and g are formed um, with the, the tongue against the soft palate, as opposed to b, which is obviously that, that's all in the lips. So if I say really clear or really good, you can hear from the shape of the vowels, even before you hear the next word that I'm heading for that k or g sound, really clear, as opposed to really big or really pretty, uh, where I'm heading for a b or a p sound. And that subtle little change in the run-up to that consonant, something that lasts for a, a tiny fraction of a second, it's enough to signal to you what sound I'm about to make, enough that it's you know just a tiny bit jarring when you hear a different sound instead. This might make for a really bad take. This might make for a really good take. So yeah, that's um, that's a little bit about how I approach editing. Um, let's talk a bit about the future. We got big plans for Radio Drama Revival. Maybe you've already heard the difference in our last few episodes, uh, but we're transitioning to editing all our interviews on tape. Don't get me wrong. I love digital. I love being able to see the waveform and zoom in and zero in on one little syllable. Um, you know, being able to clean up noise and glitches is just completely invaluable. But with tape, it's all about the feel, right? You're editing with your ears and your hands instead of your eyes. So if you aren't familiar with, with how tape editing works, uh, I've got my tape running over here. Uh, and whenever we come to a point where there's an edit required. But the, the archetypes um that you that you've put into the show mm -hmm. it's time to stop the tape i'm gonna reach over here pull this lever that uh, releases the reels and now i can uh with a hand on each reel i can rock the tape back and forth across the playhead to find the perfect edit point but the the archetypes the archetypes okay so i'm gonna mark our, our start and uh end point with a grease pencil. And uh, then it's time to break out the razor and adhesive tape. So uh, let's see how that sounds. <laughs> but the, the archetypes that you've put into the show, mm -hmm. like. Nice. Uh, the big issue with this, of course, is it's getting harder to source quality tape these days. So I'm doing what a lot of tape devotees are doing these days and I'm rolling my own. So I'm in the kitchen right now. Uh, mixing up a batch of oxide uh, using a pretty standard recipe I found online, which mixes your ferric oxide with uh, an adhesive. Um, okay, so how do we get this spread evenly on the plastic? Uh, turns out the trick is to use an ordinary pastry syringe. So here it goes. I'm even more excited because a friend of mine in Quebec has promised to send me some iron oxide from there's, there's a little mine near La Campère, Quebec, which is like the holy grail for tape makers. There's no blending. This is just pure single source iron ore that happens to have, for some reason, the perfect ratio of minerals and iron compounds that just gives you maximum warmth and clarity, which is why, you know, Steve Albini and people are, are using it to make their own tape. Yeah, uh, if you can't tell, I'm I'm really, really excited to get my hands on some of that. So look forward to RDR's interviews sounding even better in the coming months. Anyway, that's it for me. Uh, thanks for listening, and uh, thanks for tuning into Radio Drama Revival. I'm not really editing on tape. It's a lie. Radio 
drama revival has been running for a long time without transcripts, as well as without a huge chunk of this workflow. For the past year, we've prioritized getting the workflow to actually flow instead of slowly kill the health and wellness of everyone involved. Now that this is shaken out and solidified, we are introducing transcripts. We are currently producing transcripts for the showcase episodes. During the break, we're going to be working on seamlessly fitting interview transcripts into our workflow. By the time we come back in July, we'll have transcripts for every episode ongoing and a plan for tackling backlog. Said backlog is 13 years long. <laughs> We're also coming up with a plan for managing expectations. Well, hey, every episode has something called a wraparound. Those are the sections where the host talks to you in the intro and outro. We usually try to get these recordings to Will for line production by Thursday night or Friday morning. This is the hardest part of the episode for me to write, and I have no idea why. I think it's because I feel like I'm always in danger of doing a show a disservice by describing it inelegantly or incorrectly, or that I'll miss out on some other important reason why I like the show, forget to include it, and then feel bad about it. The other reason is that sometimes I put complicated outro gags in the credits or toss weird sound design challenges at will, and I want to make sure that they're funny and challenging but not evil. I love to dig into theory and literary analysis, like what I did in the wraparound for Superstition. Superstition is a southwestern gothic tale that bears some of the tropes and hallmarks of a late film noir trend known as Film Soleil, coined by critic D.K. Holm. Film Soleil is a grouping of latter-day film noir where deception and corruption play out in a sun-baked and sweltering setting. You can see Film Soleil's best examples in movies like Chinatown, Reservoir Dogs, and To Live and Die in L.A., where the sun is bright and everyone is parched, and not just for water. Gothic literature and noir detective tales are closely linked by these wasteland themes, moral deserts, eccentric characters, and decaying architecture. I'm big on using the wraparound to not just get you in the mood for whatever's coming, but to reveal a little bit beyond the top layer of the onion, entice and educate and delight in the aspects of the showcase I love. If we have a sponsor, we'll write ads for them. Sometimes I make jingles, which are very hard, turns out. Or we'll all get together and do a sketch, which is also hard because it's difficult to embed calls to action for a product and have a coherent sketch full of jokes. And then we send our little onion wraparound over to Will, who begins their process of line production. Will, over to you. Line production time. So while Eli prefers to work in things like iron, ore, and tape, um, I prefer a kind of more traditional magic. So I will take things like rosemary and lavender. I'll crush those up under a full moon um, with, you know, a thumb drive of the audio. And I like to splash a little olive oil on there just in case, you know, I'm Italian. It's just kind of what we do. Um... No, the magic that I work in is Adobe Audition, uh, which is magic in the way uh, where it is spectacular and it does amazing things, but also sometimes a curse. Uh, Audition is a an Adobe product. It is clunky. It is not entirely user-friendly, but it is what I'm trained on. It is what I know, and it is what I like. Best. So I take the wraparound and then I take the interview. I check everything for it to be at negative 16 loofs. That is a loudness meter reading and it is the industry standard and it is industry standard for a reason. Um, I will edit the wraparound. I will do a little bit of sound design that David likes to throw in for me in the wraparound and now Ellie will and I'm always excited. It's always a surprise for me. So those little moments of will, um, I don't write I just talk. Uh, right now, I'm just talking. I am really bad at reading off a script because it feels like uh, someone is telling me what to do, and I don't like that, uh, even though it's me and I told me what to do if I were to write it. I don't like writing scripts. Once everything is done and I do the little sound design, I do the moment of will, and I mush everything together, I, I save it as a wave. I do um, I mix it down in audition. Then I normalize the entire track, and then I set it to 16 loops again. I check for loudness very often, and I normalize very often. This can kind of squish some of the dynamics, but in my opinion, it makes the audio a lot more accessible, which really, really matters to me. From there, I save it as an MP3 because that's what Pinecast 
wants us to do. I would love to save and wave. I know. Meow, meow, meow. Meow, meow, meow. But I save it as an MP3. I schedule it in Pinecast, which is so easy. I love Pinecast. And I also post it in Patreon. And I do this every Saturday unless something goes wrong. And then I do it on Sunday or Line production is pretty simple and pretty fulfilling, and it's really nice to start and then just have, like, a thing. And it's just, it's the thing, and it just, it exists, and that's great. Now over to Anne for social media. The last part of our process that you all experience is our social media presence and our website. I'm Anne, and that's how you'll know me, because I'm the one who posts things. When I started with Radio Drama Revival in August 2019, the social media was lacking, uh, to say the least. (laughs) While there were weekly episodes being released, no one was posting about the episode releases anywhere except on the website. And the website wasn't even being done by a person, it was just pulling from our RSS feed. So links were broken and things didn't look right. (sighs) Wasn't great. What this led to was that the audience didn't know when episodes were releasing unless they were subscribed to the feed, interviewees and showrunners didn't get notified when their episodes were released, and we weren't expanding our show's reach. So my process now is that I have an alarm set for every Wednesday morning to go in and make posts on Twitter and Facebook for the newest Radio Drama Revival episode. In each post, I usually include a short tagline about what the episode is about, tag the featured show's account and sometimes the creators of that podcast, and a link to the episode on Spotify. A quick sidebar here. We used to use Radio Public and may go back to that at some point, but for now Spotify is our go-to to link to because it's consistently screen reader accessible as opposed to some other podcast and audio players. Getting back to social media, however, if creators have a specific support page for their show or network, I try to give that a shout-out in my posts as well. You can see examples of all of that on the Radio Drama Revival Twitter account, which is at Radio Drama. For the website, the posts are fairly simple and follow a similar process to the social media posts. When an episode goes live, I create a new post on the site with a Spotify embed of the episode, the show notes for the episode, and, if we have one for it, the transcript for the episode. While those are all things that every podcast should be doing on their website and social media accounts, another thing that I try to do when I see them is to retweet and share casting calls for fiction podcasts on our page. When I first started doing this, I would just retweet the casting call and be on my way. But as time went on, I realized that it would be convenient to be able to see the big picture details about the casting call without having to click on a link. So I began to include what I've been referring to as casting call highlights, which is exactly what it says on the tin. These highlights usually consist of something like the number of roles being cast, the type of recording style, if it's in person or remote, the due date for the casting call, and then any specifics on roles, particularly for marginalized identities. I always call those out when I see them because I want to make it as easy as possible for those who aren't typically given explicit spaces in the media to have an extra chance. Surprise! Bet you thought you heard the last of me. But, uh, got a little plot twist for you. I have some additional hats that I wear here with Radio Drama Revival, though they do tie in with our social media in some ways. It's marketing and finances. In order to keep our show running, we need that sweet, sweet cash money. Our work is a labor of love because we're committed to the cause, so our crew doesn't get paid often. But we currently make enough to pay for our hosting and for our marketing materials, which is what really matters to us. For the marketing side of things, I've created our press kit and sponsor pitch deck, which are available on our website if you'd like to peruse them, and I assist Fred in reaching out to possible sponsors for the show. I'm also the keeper of physical products, like our business cards and stickers and enamel pins, which you can buy from us by DMing the Radio Drama Revival Twitter account, and I'll sell you one for $15 plus shipping, and I'll get it in the mail immediately. I have nothing better to do. And uh, please, please buy some pins. My closet is full of podcast merch, and I have so many. Please buy them. They're really cute, and they're worth it. When we pay for things or make money from our Patreon or from selling merch, it needs to be tracked somewhere. 
Fred and I recently set up an account with Wave for online accounting, which I use for other podcast business stuff, so I'm familiar with it. And this helps us both keep tabs on what money we have for the company. Oh, uh, by the way, if you want to help support the show, you can pledge your support to us on patreon.com slash radiodrama. Some of the perks include access to our quality Discord server, where David frequently hosts Weirdo David Jeopardy, which is as weird as it sounds, uh, with categories like Can Academy, a pun on Khan Academy, which David works for, and Use Your Noodle, which was all about different types of pasta. Uh, there's also bloopers and outtakes from episodes, and my favorite, which is extended versions of the interviews. Some of them go on for so long, but a lot of what we have to cut from the episodes is some of the funniest stuff. It just doesn't fit into an hour to an hour and a half of a Radio Drama Revival episode. And I think, I think that's all I have for you now. So enjoy the rest of the episode. That's our process, more or less. You know, and I think you'll see... Um, We'll, pr- we'll continue to refine our process over the next several years of the show. Um, but this brings us to our big news that we've been hinting at. Drum roll, please. Um, when we come back from our break, I will no longer be the host of Radio Drama Revival. I am stepping back to be an executive producer. You will still hear from me, but our new host will be... It's me. Yeah, it's Hell me. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm really excited. Um, back in, oh my God, David, uh, February of last year. Yeah. Yeah. Back in February of last year uh, or January of last year, uh, David approached me and, and asked me, hey, I would like you to consider becoming the host for Radio Drama Revival. I think that you'd be really good at it. I think that Anyway, if I tell you everything that David said, I'm going to start crying on mic. Well, so, it, it, um. it felt, it. I, I have to tell you, it felt kind of like a marriage proposal. <laughs> I was so scared. I didn't know what you were going to say. I didn't know how you would take it. Um, That's fair. Because, Ellie, I, I, I believe in you so much. Uh, I'm, I'm so proud of the work that you do, like both in your own solo writing and on the work that you've done on this show. Uh, and I'm I'm so grateful uh, to be your your friend and your colleague, um, and to hand over a show the reins of a show that is like so healthy and vibrant uh, and cool. You know, um, I'm I'm really I'm really proud of the work that I've done over the five years as host, and I'm preemptively proud of the work that you will do. Uh, and I'm not I'm not going anywhere. You'll still hear my voice from time to time. I'll do the ads. I'll do an interview here and there. You know, I'm not going to be gone. But I I wanted to take some time to do some of my own creative work. Uh, I want to write books, maybe write an audio drama, you know, uh, work a little bit more on my voiceover stuff. Um, and Everybody and just... hire David. <laughs> But I, I, I want you, I want you, the audience, to know that like, there's no ill will here or anything. Like, I'm, I'm so excited to hand the reins over to Ellie because this is going to be fabulous. The show will change, and that's good. Change is good. Yeah, the stuff that works, we're gonna keep. Like the, the processes that we figured out and the things that we, we do in some of the episodes that we have a lot of fun with, that we implemented over the past year that we really like, some of those are, a lot of those are going to stay. Um, because I have a lot of faith in the way that RDR has built itself up for the past 13 years. My God, um, Ellie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our, our podcast is a really teenager now. Um, yeah. Unruly? One of those Unruly. Unruly teenager right now. Um, And when I say that, like, when I say online or when I talk to people about interviewing, when I say that David is my interview mentor, I mean that uh, very literally. Um, (laughs) Very, very literally. (laughs) What? I still remember that first conversation uh, (laughs) when, when when I walked you through it. Yeah. 
Yeah, when I had my first ever interview as a reporter um, with uh, Anne Hepperman, mm-hmm. Anne Hepperman's amazing, everybody. Um, I went to David and I went, David, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Help. <laughs> I believe I told you that nobody knows what they're doing, but that I would do my level best to assist you. Yeah, and he did. And I have gotten comfortable with doing interviews on mic for both written interviews and audio interviews because of David. Uh, Because of asking David questions and asking for his help, but also listening to David. And of course, a lot of other people as well, right? I have done copious amounts of my own research uh, into figuring out how I want to host and how I want to interview people and what is the vibe that I'm going for. Uh, But uh, David was instrumental in, in getting there. And so... For that reason, when you hear me in the coming seasons, you're going to hear a lot of David uh, just because it's impossible to extricate David from the way that I learned how to do things. My heart. (laughs) And I will say If you're going to make me cry, I'm taking you down with me. Oh, you son of a bitch. Um, (laughs) Since since you joined the show, I would say that our our styles have, have twined together in many different ways. Uh, For example, there's, uh, it would have never occurred to me to create season breaks. You know, I I think that Ellie, you come at at a production with such a a generous heart and such a sense of empathy for everyone involved. Like it would never have occurred to me to create seasons. Like I'm, I'm, I'm just like, I gotta be on all the time, like 50 shows a year. Let's do this thing, you know? (laughs) And, and I think that there's so many ways in which you have encouraged me to be kinder to myself and to all of our schedules uh, generally, um, that I think that has had like this really wonderful positive change for the show. Um, I don't know. I know it's, I know it can be kind of gross for, I don't think of us as a, you know, like for, for production teams to talk about themselves as families, like that, that can, that sort of language can be used to cover up like un unhealthy relationships or paper over problems. But I think that we have arrived at really lovely uh, conflict resolution methods within the team. Uh, I I really look forward to Monday night when we have our production meetings. Even when we don't have anything like major on the docket, like I love to just get on the video chat and see everyone's face. Um, and, And Ellie has been a huge contributor to that, like those processes and that feeling. Um, so, so trust me when I say that the show is in such good hands. So Ellie, I think that's, that's it for, for this episode, right? We're gonna bounce this out to folks and then retreat into our... David, this is it for the season. Holy cats. 13 years and we've never had a season break. You know, we'll take like breaks. 13 years, everybody. (laughs) Not a single season break. Are you kidding me? As soon as I learned this, I was like, all right, the season breaks are coming. Doesn't we, matter. Okay. In like, fair, it's, we, it's we took breaks for some holidays. Or when I was sick. Y'all. Or I got married <laughs> and people filled in. Uh. Anyway, <laughs> I'm really happy we have season breaks, everybody. Uh, yeah. But that's not, be happy that's not with it us. for us. You'll be hearing from us through the summer if you are a Patreon subscriber. Yeah, yeah. Do join us. We've got some fun shit planned. Yeah, I'm going to be doing all sorts of wild stuff in the Discord. There will be more Weirdo David Jeopardy, if you know about Weirdo David Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. We'll be playing some games. Yeah, some good good old-fashioned live stream games. It's going to be good. Mm. It's going to be good. Okay, so you will hear from us, audience. Uh, you will hear from me. I hope that you enjoy the the vision that I will be embarking on in our new season. And uh, I hope that you are all doing well and that you are warm and you are safe and so are your loved ones. If you love Radio Drama Revival and you want to see us be able to pay ourselves and improve our process and equipment, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. We've got extended cuts, a private Discord server where you can play Weirdo David Jeopardy once a month, and more. If you'd like something a little more physical, you can buy merch at our shop at radiodramarevival.com slash shop. 
We've even got enormous warm hoodies you can wear while you're gazing thoughtfully out the window. Jazz music playing on your record player. And now we bring you our moment of will. Meow, meow, meow. I don't script these. Meow, meow, meow. I'm really sleepy. I'm not good at improvising songs, but I love you. Meow, meow, meow. I think that means it's time for the season break gong. Followed by the sound of our new theme song and the credits. This episode was recorded in Portland, Oregon, which is the unceded territory of the Chinook Indian Nation, the Cowlitz Indian Tribe, and the Clackamas Tribe. If you would like to support natives getting their land back, the Chinook Indian Nation is currently raising funds for the purchase of their 1851 Tansy Point Treaty Grounds, the only known place where all five tribes and their members were present at one time. You can find the link to their fundraiser in our episode description. David's theme song is Danger Digadoo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. This electro swing bop will always be in the archives for you. Our new theme song is Reunion of the Space Ducks by the band Kylo Kaos. You can find their jazzy music on Free Music Archive. What can you tell me about my hosting vibe from this song and prior times I've filled in? Add us on Twitter. We also used Kevin McLeod's song, Run Amok. Thanks, Kevin. Our line producer and associate interviews producer is Will Williams. Our senior interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our social media manager is Ann Baird. Our submissions editor is Rashika Rao. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our executive producers are Fred Greenhouch and David Reinstrom. I'm your new host, Elena Fernandez-Collins, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers, welcome.